You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. You're listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. Today's episode is another installment of our resident series, where we are interviewing residents with the aim of learning about their path to residency and the specialty they ended up pursuing. My name is Ali. And my name is Adam. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Dr. Armand Malhotra, a PGY1 and soon to be PGY2 resident in neurosurgery at the University of Toronto. So thanks for joining us on the show today, Armand. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we wanted to start off with kind of a question that we haven't really asked to, to many other people on the show, and that is for the people that aren't in medicine and don't know what neurosurgeons do, what would you say they think neurosurgeons do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, um, you know, I, I didn't have the best answer to that until maybe I was midway through PGY1, even having done uh, the majority of my fourth year in neurosurgery. Um, I think, uh, you know, there, there's a perception that's, that's certainly informed by the media about what neurosurgery is on a daily basis. And I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are some elements that very rarely are true, but I think the majority of the job is, is completely different as to oh, what's yeah. advertised to, to the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a surgical specialty uh, where you, you deal with a, a vast kind of range of structural pathologies involving the brain, spine, and peripheral nerves. Um, due to the, the importance of those structures, there are certainly moments where, you know, things are extremely uh, acute and, and urgent and intervention is, is uh, absolutely required in a, in a very timely fashion. But there are other times where, you know, we have times to get coffees and, uh, you know, <laughs> chat about our weekends and, uh, you know, run clinics that are, are fairly calm and, and routine. So it sounds like the media doesn't do a great job of portraying <laughs> accurately what it is neurosurgeons do. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. I think in general, um, you know, if you look at the, the portrayal of, of most medical specialties, I think neurosurgery um, or, or any other specialty for that matter, I, I don't necessarily think it's, uh, it's portrayed the best. I mean, I personally love house, but I, I think to be an intern who can also do an appendectomy and then see a patient in the emerge and then make a diagnosis of, uh, you know, lupus. Um, <laughs> always lupus. I, I, yeah, exactly. Always I, lupus. I don't really know if that, that physician exists. Right. Yeah. All right. And so taking you back to kind of the very start of medical school, um, was neurosurgery on your radar or kind of where was your head at in terms of specialties? Uh, so neurosurgery, uh, you know, I didn't actually know really that it existed other than that perhaps, uh, a distant part that I'd seen in the media. Mm-hmm. I think um, coming into medical school, I was definitely overwhelmed um, by the breadth of, of specialty options and, and sort of the diversity of career paths that, that lay ahead. Um, I, I think I remember just the first week of medical school, just getting used to, to meeting people. And, and, you know, you already had people in your class who were shadowing multiple things and coming back saying, you know, oh, I spent the day in the OR and mm-hmm. saw this great case. And um, you know, you suddenly think, oh, I, I just got here and um, suddenly I have to decide what I, what I need to do. Uh, so I, I definitely did not know about neurosurgery early on and actually found myself in um, 
in work with global health and sickle cell disease, as well as uh, pediatric plastic surgery in my, oh, in my cool. first year. What kind of things did you do with uh, global health in your first year? Yeah, so at, uh, uh, at UBC um, in Vancouver, uh, you know, there was a great opportunity to be involved in, in the global health initiative, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of an umbrella program that allowed uh, uh, junior medical students to get involved with projects that had been established um, that were uh, in the arena of global health related um, uh, work. And so sort of uniquely, we were coming in in a year uh, where the second year medical student um, had actually totally started a new initiative in, in Nepal, looking at screening and diagnostics uh, for sickle cell disease and incidents um, in a rural part of Nepal. Uh, the interesting thing in, in that situation was the government actually had an entire infrastructure to provide patients who were diagnosed uh, or screened positive with sickle cell disease, um, subsidized uh, uh, kind of healthcare access, uh, access to vaccinations. And, um, but there was a huge discrepancy because some of the most uh, marginalized patients were the ones who had the highest risk of sickle cell disease in particular in a, in a Western part of Nepal. So the goal of this project was to improve the screening infrastructure and diagnostics in that area, and then develop an education platform to try to connect those patients who screen positive with genetic counseling and with government services. So is that something uh, that you were able to be on the ground for? Yeah, yeah. So, so we kind of spent the entire year uh, planning a second phase project after an initial large screening uh, uh, camp was done the year before us. And uh, this was the second year of this project. So, you know, there were eight of us uh, medical students and we got to Kathmandu on the first day. And uh, unfortunately, we're, we're sort of uh, stopped dead in our tracks by um, the bureaucracy that can kind of underlie uh, right. healthcare deployment in, in some mm-hmm. of these um, uh, more uh, you know, challenged uh, health infrastructure, uh, healthcare infrastructures. Um, and so when we, when we arrived, there was one key person who uh, essentially at the last minute totally said that, you know, our project uh, was not in line with what they, what they had hoped it would be. Oh, wow. um, and this was after getting approval from the minister of health from multiple hematopathologists. And mm-hmm. this, this particular administrator was, totally uh, unrelated to the medical field at all. They just needed to essentially give us a, a license to be able to do this in, in this particular area. Right. Um, and so we, we certainly had to do some creative problem solving on the ground, but, but managed to, uh, to come up with a, a pretty impactful project at the end of it. Oh, that's awesome. I yeah. know that's something that's, uh, that's still running today. So uh, glad that you kind of got that off the ground in, in, in the year that you did. No, and definitely with a lot of help from our uh, from our seniors that year who uh, yeah. who started the project. Yeah, and was that something that you found coming back from from the trip and from the from the whole project? Did that help to inform kind of your personal interests in medicine, or kind of start to shape that a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the things that it kind of uh, one of the doors it opened was um, this issue about access to healthcare, mm-hmm. and I think. It's, it's very attractive initially to think about those problems on the scale of, um, you know, countries and, and, and different very foreign environments. But I think uh, one of the major takeaways was that, um, you know, underscoring a lot of 
work in global health is improving access to patients who don't have access to certain care. Um, and so as, as my interest in neurosurgery sort of uh, got sparked early in second year um, with some of the lectures that were more focused on the nervous system and um, some neurosurgeons who, who spent more time teaching us in, uh, in the classroom, um, I, I ended up kind of merging those interests and uh, working with one of the neurosurgeons in Vancouver on a, on a project looking at access to deep brain stimulation across uh, Canada. And okay. uh, that, that was a tremendous learning opportunity for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Now for, for more uh, junior medical students, what's a, what's a brief way that you would explain deep brain stimulation? Yeah, deep brain stimulation. Uh, so, so, you know, I'd never heard of it until we had a lecture on Parkinson's disease. It's, okay. it's like a uh, pacemaker for certain uh, cells or, or populations of cells in the brain. Cool. Um, so, so specifically, you can implant uh, electrodes uh, using stereotaxis, uh, which is essentially a frame or in some cases a non-frame based way of, of um, inserting an electrode in a highly accurate way using uh, image guidance and uh, integrating it with uh, uh, operative technology to allow placement of an electrode within millimeters of a, of a deep brain structure. So if, wow. if you imagine you drill a small hole in the skull and then you're aiming for a, uh, a cluster or a nucleus or a region, um, for example, the globus pallidus or one of these deep structures um, that you, you, know, you don't want to be off by... Uh, by millimeters, let alone centimeters, which is right. very easy to do. Um, and so, so one of the interesting things in, in uh, uh, deep brain stimulation is you actually can listen to the frequencies of cell uh, signaling and communication on the trajectory of the electrode into that deep brain area. And so someone who's trained in functional neurosurgery can walk into an OR and based on the, the sound of the, of the transducer in the room, we'll know which pocket of, of neurons that, uh, that's in. Wow. Um, and so, you know, this is, uh, this is like a, obviously highly subspecialized, uh, neurosurgery, which I, I won't even pretend to know about, but <laughs> one of the things we were looking at is that uh, by virtue of the fact that this is such a subspecialized, uh, field of, of, uh, neurosurgery, um, you know, one of the main indications for, uh, deep brain stimulation is for treatment of medically refractory Parkinson's disease. So patients who have tremors that are debilitating, um, that are on multiple medications and are having side effects from uh, these medications. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at that population, that's actually a, a significant population of, um, you know, um, elder patients and patients across the country, but you only have a handful of centers across the country that are offering this service. So so our goal was to assess what is the actual access across the country? How does that access differ between rural and urban populations? Does that access differ across provinces? And uh, uh, we sort of tried to try to answer some of those higher level questions. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of this project, or even at the beginning of this project, um, where was your head at in terms of these, in terms of neurosurgery in general? And at that point, were you committed to pursuing it as your specialty? No. So, so at that point, I think, um, I, the, my, my clinical interest was certainly peaked and I, I really like the nervous system neuroanatomy. Um, I, I like the approach to sort of the undifferentiated, uh, neurological patient where you're trying to localize lesions, uh, based on your understanding of anatomy and their symptoms. Um, but I will also say that, you know, I, I was thoroughly enjoying, uh, 
learning about ECG interpretation, learning about all of the internal medicine type topics. Um, uh, and I, I really did not know, um, you know, through second year, majority of third year, um, whether I was sort of on the neurosurgery side of things or the um, uh, internal medicine side of things. So I was really just going through with an open mind, but um, trying to explore neurosurgery in an active way by, by getting involved in research. Right. That's interesting you mentioned that because I think what we've started to hear a little bit from a number of guests that we've had on the show that for a lot of people, the that first division is the you know medical versus surgical specialty. And for some, that's super clear. Um, but it's quite nice to kind of hear a different perspective from you saying that like you were having internal and neurosurgery on your list right until the very end. Yeah, I think I think one of the things I found was challenging is that you know, you go through the process of trying to make decisions about your career and your future um, in the first and second years of medical school, where the majority of your time is is not actually being immersed in the specialties that you're thinking about, right? Like right. you're not on a surgical service um, in the OR every day. You're right. learning about the cerebral aspects of surgical care versus medical care versus, um, you know, lab-based or, or radiologic type uh, um uh, practice. And, and one of the things is, you know, I found in first and second year, everything's new, everything's interesting, and, and you don't really know what the experience of um, being in a specialty is like. And I, I think that really, um, you know, one of the things I, I really liked was going through with a little bit of an open mind, but also mm -hmm. trying to proactively make decisions and then really go into third year, uh, where you get thrust onto the wards with, with sort of interest in multiple things, but but also with a little bit of a, a timeline to, to try to make a decision fairly quickly. Right. So going into clerkship, interested in neurosurgery, interested in internal medicine. Um, how did the track that you ended up in uh, end up informing your decision in the end? Yeah. So, so at, uh, at UBC, I'm not sure if this is specified elsewhere in the podcast, but you know, you have different tracks. And, and so in particular, the track I had in my third year uh, core rotations was starting with surgery, surgery, and then uh, followed by psychiatry and internal medicine. Okay, so within the first half of the year, I had exposure to the two things that, you know, I, I was seriously considering. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, um, I, I would have been hard pressed to say, you know, uh, oh, I'm, I'm 100% committed to neurosurgery. I was also I was also thinking about um, orthopedics for that avenue to spine, for example, I was thinking okay. about ophthalmology, I was thinking about um, internal medicine, and within internal medicine, critical care, cardiology, infectious disease, uh, all for different reasons. Uh, but neurosurgery, for the reason of the anatomy, the patient population, and, and some few shadowing experiences was sort of highest on my list. So interestingly enough, my first rotation of, of clerkship was neurosurgery. Oh, no way. The first patient I ever admitted, quote unquote, like admitted under the close supervision of a resident, <laughs> um, was uh, a patient with um, uh, a tectal tumor and uh, uh, presented with uh, paranoid syndrome, which is a fairly classic neurological syndrome of uh, up gaze palsy, um, uh, convergent nystagmus, and uh, 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 sort of some some typical findings uh, as well as hydrocephalus, and so this oh, was wow. a patient who you know we admitted they were GCS fifteen awake, and over the course of that first call shift, um, within a couple hours, 
we had to take to the OR for an urgent EVD and the staff wow. actually, once the burr hole was drilled and, you know, basically with the resident holding my hand allowed me to kind of place the drain and uh, you, you kind of feel the reward of that CSF rushing out and, and you mm. know, the patient doing better post-op. Um, so that was a, you know, a phenomenal experience. And um, I, I still think it, it was very lucky to, to have been in that situation as a brand new third year medical student to, uh, uh, to the wards. But, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll remember that throughout my entire career as sort of one of the first uh, times I was doing something in a neurosurgical OR. Right. It's a heck of a first week. Yeah, no <laughs> first rotation. No yeah, exactly. Um, this is a bit, again, a bit of a naive question on my end, but so when you said like kind of quote unquote admitting a patient, what does that actually look like in, in, in neurosurge just even when you were a clerk? So are you kind of walking through the hospital, uh, like the neuro floor and then also in the OR, what does that look like? Yeah. So, so typically, you know, on a surgical service, your um, the, the chief resident and the fellow will be in the operating room with the staff. Um, there'll be a certain staff person who is on call. And depending on the hospital you're at, that staff person will field calls from outside of that hospital. So the staff person that day was taking calls from all over British Columbia. Oh, okay. This particular patient was coming from a, a northern part of BC um, and, and there was a rural emergency physician who had done a CT scan and found this uh, lesion, hydrocephalus, and was sending the patient down for assessment and intervention. Okay. And so this was a patient we were expecting um, and was coming, uh, was basically being uh, air ambulanced into the, uh, into the hospital. Um, and so once they arrive, uh, the workflow is that the resident on call will get a page from the emergency triage and say, you know, your patient's here. Um, okay. and this is the patient that you're expecting. That resident may also get calls from the emergency or any other service within the hospital that's consulting them. So as the resident, you typically have responsibility in the OR, uh, as well as responsibility to all of the issues that are happening on call. So that particular day when the patient came in, um, they were GCS 15 at triage and they were, they were kind of awake and, and bright and moving their arms and legs really well. And so, the, the resident had asked me to basically go and see that patient and do my history and physical and oh, come nice. up with a quote unquote plan. Right. So, so between third and fourth year, you're really trying to uh, build your skills about asking pertinent history questions, uh, pertinent past medical history, and then coming up with a cohesive story and trying to take uh, steps into developing a plan for that patient. Um, I think the plan formation is more of a fourth year and first year resident type skill. Um, but, uh, the, the act of seeing a patient cohesively kind of understanding why they're here and what's important to the specialty you're, you're representing and then communicating that to your team. If you can do that really well, you'll be, you know, you'll sail through clerkship. Uh, right. that, that's sort of the core clerkship goal is to, to know what's pertinent uh, do a focused exam and then uh, communicate that exam effectively. And then, you know, after you had completed these surgical experiences and moved on to uh, psychiatry and internal, how did those experiences go and, and were they just as good or, um, you know, did you have an experience that said, no, I actually preferred neurosurgery overall? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on, uh, uh, so I, I think on, on psychiatry, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a very different side of the spectrum of, of neurological disease, but it was something that I, I didn't necessarily want to do and, and kind of realized that fairly early. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when I came to internal medicine and started on CTU, um, I had a string of, of staff people who were uh, just amazing mentors. And mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it made the decision extremely challenging because, right. uh, you, you know, I came in fresh from this sort of high of being on surgery for three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly I found that I was really enjoying internal medicine. The teaching was excellent. I really liked the, the, uh, the undifferentiated patient, but then also having the ability to make hypotheses and then test those hypotheses and then try to come up with a, with an answer or a, a diagnosis and, and uh, that informs your treatment. Um, but I think the, the group of residents as well as the staff person played a huge role in, in uh, first of all, teaching me how to be a good medical student and then also uh, teaching me about how, uh, you know, how much I could like internal medicine. Okay. And one of the things that, you know, as a result of your track system, you had kind of your, your top specialties right off the bat. And, and one recommendation that we've heard is to try and have your track so that your top specialties are last so that you'll be the most experienced clerk going into them and can make a good impression. How did you find having your top specialties right off the bat compared to, you know, if you had had them later on? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's, there's always, um, at, at the end of the day that the tracks are lottery based, right? There's, mm-hmm. um, so I think the reality is that, you know, nothing that the lottery churns out will be, um, so shaping of your future that you won't be able to sort of take a certain trajectory or career path. I think in my case, I was fortunate because I came in with some uncertainty about what I wanted to do and, and really wanted to see how, what surgery was, see what internal medicine was, and then try to decide. Um, so, you know, I, I really didn't have that much pressure on myself to try to show up that first day and you know, know everything. Sure. I would read around cases and, and, and try to be a good medical student, but you know, I I had no idea where to even stand during rounds. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you get to the hospital and and people are doing things You're There's always the classic story of like following the resident and then they end up going to the bathroom and you're like, am I standing (laughs) here? Right. Like, you know what I mean? It's, um, so a lot of that was, uh, just learning how the hospital worked. And I, I think, almost being in neurosurgery the first couple of weeks, it just took the pressure off of me. It took the pressure off of everyone there. They're like, Oh, this is a fresh clerk. You know, we're not going to, you know, I think the expectation of a third year medical student is, is to be a good team oriented person, have an aptitude mm-hmm. to try to learn and, and pick things up. But uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be asking you for the differential diagnosis of uh, you know, a pineal gland lesion um, when you, uh, when you show up on, on your first day. Right. Um, That's the flip side. <laughs> yeah, the, the flip side to that is, you know, I, I definitely have friends who uh, knew with certainty that, oh, I, you know, I'm for sure doing ophthalmology or I'm for sure going to be a family physician. And in that case, um, yeah, there is something to be said about doing that at the end of your whole entire year and, and trying to use that as time to get reference letters. Hmm. Um, the one thing I may caution is that anytime you have a reference letter from third year, I would say that there should be ample opportunity to get a reference letter in fourth year. If okay. it's in the same specialty that you're booking electives in, in fourth year. Gotcha. Um, you know, I, I can't speak to what committees look for, but um, intuitively it would make more sense. And, and, you know, I would suspect a fourth year rotation is a better representation of your skills just from a temporal standpoint than, um, yeah. uh, than any third year rotation. Definitely. 
when it came to fourth year for you, because um, you mentioned you still hadn't really made that 100% decision between neurosurgeon and internal, is that how you structured your electives, kind of like trying to really make that call? Yeah, exactly. So I think at the beginning of my, uh, well, at the end of my third year, if you asked me, I would have said that, you know, I'm leaning towards neurosurgery, but I'm okay. still curious about um, internal medicine because I was only exposed to the CTU and obviously right. the in- internal medicine, you know, you have all of the subspecialties right. um, and I wanted to see those things. I like the idea of the, of critical care, of the procedural aspect of cardiology, of, um, uh, of GI, for example, respirology. So the way I structured my fourth year was um, I, I did predominantly out-of-province neurosurgery. I started okay. with four weeks of uh, ICU because I thought that would be good exposure to internal medicine as well as neurosurgery. Um, and I did ICU at Vancouver General Hospital, which you know a lot of those patients are traumatic brain injury, subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, as well as medical uh, ICU patients. Um, so that was excellent, just sort of foundational training um, and, and really... You know, I wouldn't say that that sort of pushed me in one direction or the other, but as soon as I started my rotations where I was consistently in the operating room on a neurosurgical service for, um, you know, I ended up doing 10 weeks in a row, um, it, it was sort of like, I think I didn't really feel that convinced that this is the right thing for me on, on any other part of my medical training other than right. those 10 weeks. And so then fast forwarding to the CARMS process, what was that like now, you know, going for neurosurgery and and obviously it being a competitive specialty? Yeah. So I, I, you know, in in hindsight, the CARMS tour was, um, you know, two of the craziest, most fun weeks uh, of of (laughs) medical school. I think um, I remember the stress of, of the first interview and the night before our first stop was Dalhousie. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, we were showing up in January, it was like minus 20, we landed <laughs> the day before it was dark, you have to take this like 45 minute um, shuttle from the airport to the Airbnb that you're staying. So I kind of walked into this Airbnb. Um, and uh, there was this huge, uh, huge dog that was there, super cute dog. <laughs> but um, uh, the next morning when I was in my, like I had just put on my suit and I was ready to go, this dog basically ran out of, the, uh, of one of the rooms and just like tackled me. And so I had like, uh, you know, all this fuzz all over my, my suit. I ended up switching to my second suit, which was a, a good call that I had too. And yeah. then uh, definitely stayed at hotels from there on <laughs> as opposed to, to Airbnbs. Um, but the, the nice thing about the neurosurgery tour and a lot of these uh, smaller tours is that you get to know a lot of your co-residents. And even to this date, you know, the, the people I met um, on the CARMS tour and those two weeks, they're all our co- like colleagues uh, across the country. And so, you know, you always hear of people doing certain things and it's nice to kind of suddenly know every single PGY1 in uh, neurosurgery um, in the country at any given yeah. time. Like I could almost tell you a story about each person, right? Like it, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was a really nice way to get to know everybody who's kind of moving into your, your career path. Mm, so you ended up in Toronto. Um, so how did you come to that decision? Uh, so yeah, the decision about Toronto. So I, I did my, um, high school, medical school, uh, undergrad studies all, all in Vancouver. Um, I, when it came down to, to deciding, 
you know, there are different factors that you have to consider. I think everybody has a, it's a very personal decision and, and certainly tests, um, you know, your value system and uh, the place that you see yourself being happy training, the program and people that you want to be around during training and uh, the people and, and personal life that you also want to have and, and cultivate during training. So I think when, when I did my rotations in, in different parts of the country, you know, I, I found that I, I'd be really happy with um, the groups of residents in most of the different stops along the, the tour. Um, you know, I thought that there were very solid groups of, of residents and, and colleagues. Uh, I really liked the city of Toronto. It was, it was just kind of this huge city that, uh, you know, felt like it had a lot of, uh, um, uh, like I could really explore it from, from, a, a food, coffee, like everything mm-hmm. the city had to offer. Uh, you know, I really like outdoor sports. And, and so leaving Vancouver and what, what it had to offer was definitely challenging. Mm-hmm. But um, there, there was a tremendous amount of uh, just wanting to jump into something totally new. Um, and it felt like a nice time to just really try something that was, um, you know, going to push me both uh, outside of work and at work to just land in a new place and, and sort of start a new residency. In terms of Toronto specifically, uh, a lot of the research uh, that's done in Toronto with regard to neurosurgery was research that I was interested in getting involved in. Um, and, uh, you know, neurosurgery residency, your fourth year is mandatory entire calendar year of research. And so, oh, cool. um, so that, that's why it's a six-year program. And so I, I was really looking forward to the, the opportunities that would be available in Toronto for that fourth year. That's interesting. And so now, I guess, a full year into the program, how have those expectations of Toronto and University of Toronto's residency program, how have those lived up to the actual realities? Yeah, so, so I think the, um, for any resident who is kind of moving from an area that they're very comfortable um, to a different city and a different program, um, there are definitely waves to that. And uh, you know, I found that the excitement of the first couple months of being in a new residency program, they were all great. And, um, but I, I definitely remember around October of, of my first year kind of thinking that, you know, oh, like this is really sinking in that, you know, I'm, this is home and this is where I'm going to be. And, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of keeping in touch with all of these great friends from medical school and, uh, you know, most of them are, are back home. And, um, you know, that, w- that was a very sort of, uh, delayed reality to sink, to sink in. Um, but then, then you kind of realize that, you know, there, there are such great people, uh, here that you have the chance to work with. And, and, you know, I, I think I've really gotten to know a lot of people in the program really well, people in surgical foundations. So those are other first year residents, uh, to the point where now Toronto is feeling more comfortable. It's feeling small. I was just on call yesterday. You bump into another first year. So I, I saw, I saw my friend in general surgery. We're both called to a trauma last night um, and you know you just see that familiar face and suddenly the pro- the whole city and the whole program feels a lot smaller so so it's nice when those things happen and and that just takes time and, and it will happen for everyone um, I think the the program's definitely lived up I, I I have nothing but great things to say about um, my my experience so far as a PGY1 I think um, I've been taught and and uh, and uh, mentored very well um, I, I definitely feel overwhelmed by expectations in coming years, but I think that's very normal for, <laughs> yeah. for anybody, any resident in any program. Mm-hmm. 
any medical student really (laughs) yeah yeah pretty much pretty much at any point of uh the past like nine years (laughs) (laughs) yeah now what does the the program actually look like for like on a on a day-to-day basis for you yeah so every every residency program is split into blocks um so each block roughly reflects uh one month uh on the calendar and um your first and second year you tend to do more blocks or rotations that are maybe away or, or sort of um, related, but not completely related to your, uh, your specialty of training. So for example, you know, in my first year, I did a couple months of uh, plastic surgery. I was scheduled for a month of uh, a general emergency medicine, but actually got redeployed away from that because of coronavirus sort of changes mm-hmm. and coverage requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also have the responsibility of becoming, you know, a, a good junior resident at, uh, at your home discipline and, and doing reading around that. And so uh, a regular day, you, you know, you kind of come into round between 530 and, and 630, depending on the service. Um, what that means is you, you meet the team and, and one member of that team was on call from the previous night. They will let you know about any consults or overnight issues for ward patients or new patients that came through the emergency. Um, you then kind of, uh, you know, everybody has to get to the operating room by between 7.30 to 7.45. So from the time that you hand over to 7.30, you try to make your rounds and see all of your admitted patients. Okay. Uh, make sure that everybody has plans for the day, speak to sort of the interdisciplinary health team and, and sort of make sure that PT, OT, nursing, they all kind of have ideas of, of what the patient's disposition and plans are for the day. Um, and then you go to the operating room. So, uh, you know, ideally you would have read about the case that you're doing, uh, typically as a junior resident, you would be, um, you know, you would be starting the case, uh, with the skin incision, doing the exposure. And as you get more comfortable, you know, doing more and more, uh, portions of the case in a supervised fashion. Um, and then at the end, you know, you kind of hand over from the day, anything that's gone on, um, uh, the on-call person will have the pager. And so any issues will go through that person and they will be the ones staying overnight until the next morning. Awesome. And so we wanted to give you some space and some time to also speak about kind of what you see, um, as part of your future practice. And now you've mentioned that, you know, fourth year will be an opportunity to do some research and obviously your background with the uh, Nepal sickle cell project where do you see kind of global surgery and advocacy work coming into your practice? And, and when do you think um, you'd like to pursue that? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a great question. That's sort of been the, um, the topic on my mind for, <laughs> for the past year. And mm-hmm. uh, I still certainly don't have uh, a cohesive answer that, that sort of is a trajectory for myself. I think, uh, you know, every month I kind of see myself doing different subspecialties within neurosurgery. Uh, currently, I'm on my pediatrics rotation and oh, cool. uh, uh, really like the sort of breadth and, and applications to global health that are afforded by a, a career in uh, pediatric neurosurgery. But in terms of um, exactly which subspecialty or, or research path um, I'll, I'll head in, I, I'm still not sure. Um, you know, I, I, at, at this point, I think it, it changes every month for me. And I think <laughs> uh, that that sort of... Um, hopefully reflects that I chose the right general residency program and and I still have not got to the point where I'm, uh, I'm completely set on a particular subspecialty within neurosurgery. I think 
there's still a lot of general neurosurgery that I, I need to be exposed to and see before picking that path. In terms of health advocacy and, and involvement in global health, I think one of the things that um, involvement in the sickle cell project sort of taught me was the, the balance between um, educational value and, uh, you know, value that you can add to an initiative um, as, as somebody who, who is involved in an initiative. So I think to elaborate on that, um, you know, maybe historically, one of the models that was more applied in, in global surgery was this model of um, taking trained experts um, and then traveling or, or moving to a different area doing a lot of surgeries, operating on a lot of patients who really have uh, significant pathology that need attention, but perhaps not access to certain surgical services. Okay. Um, but then those, those practitioners would leave and they would, they would sort of, um, you know, those patients, they would still have complications or, or require subsequent um, management and, and sort of attention. Right. Um, and so, so the sustainability of that model, even though it can have significant benefits, is is certainly uh, a criticism right. and so within the field of global surgery there there sort of was a pioneering um, uh, paper in 2015 through the lancet commission on global surgery that sort of captured the burden of, of surgical disease in, in low and middle income countries and and their real uh, economic and social detriment to, to these gaps in access and i think since that time there's been a lot of exciting work done to try to make the world smaller through educational initiatives that can mm -hmm. be, um, you know, virtual, um, through uh, fellowships that that really uh, allow for surgeons in certain parts of the world to train with other surgeons who maybe have uh, had access to different educational uh, means and, and methods, and then take those skills and go back to the to the area that they practice, and then be a longitudinal. Um, uh, sort of a person in that community as opposed to just sort of helicoptering in and then leaving. Um, so, so even in the neurosurgery community there, there are certainly, uh, there are, there's federations and groups uh, of different neurosurgeons trying to do higher quality research, higher quality um, uh, analysis of um, problems and, and how they're unique in, in certain low income settings and, and sort of how to optimize solutions for those settings. Um, I think the, so, so to kind of take that huge tangent and bring it back to myself, um, I often ask like, when is the right time for me to actually, let's say, for example, you were to look at me going to a different part of the world and, and right. being involved in neurosurgical care. Mm -hmm. At this point, I would be a burden to whoever accepts me as a, you know, on their nursery, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I'm, uh, I'm coming to the end of my first year of residency. It's, uh, I certainly don't have anything to offer. Um, but I, I think when you look at collaboration, um, sort of late in later years of training, um, there, there's a tremendous, uh, opportunity for, for that. And so I'm certainly excited to integrate that. Um, but I, I don't fully know exactly how that will, um, uh, will manifest, but I, I, you know, I do have several mentors here at the Toronto Neurosurgery Program who are extremely involved in both virtual and in-person um, initiatives with different organizations and countries um, where they're trying to cultivate neurosurgical access and programs. So, 
Uh, so certainly lots to learn from. Okay. I think honestly, like hearing your answer and saying the words, I'm not sure. And, and that you're still trying to figure it out and that your mind changes on a month to month basis. I think that resonates with a lot of us, at Absolutely. least myself for sure, <laughs> especially with the way that, you know, our curriculums are designed for you. You're changing blocks every month for us. We're changing blocks every week now with the spiral <laughs> curriculum. Um, so we're definitely interested in every other thing that comes through the door. Um, what would you say to, you know, first, second, third, even fourth year students who are trying to figure out, you know, what specialty they want to pursue? What kind of questions do you think they should ask themselves? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. That's definitely the crux of like, um, you know, a major stressor throughout all years of medical school is, is that looming decision. Um, my sort of approach was, uh, uh, sort of feeling overwhelmed for sure at first, and then just sort of realizing that, um, you know, there are a finite number of options. And so uh, I think midway through first year, at, at some point, I just created a Word document with all of the possible specialties that, you know, were on the Royal College website. And, mm -hmm. and there are only, you know, X number of uh, specialties that you have the opportunity to go into. And so I sort of just listed them one to 30 or however many there were. And, um, uh, you know, I, I just sort of started getting rid of the ones that I maybe had some exposure to and it didn't completely resonate or click right away. Um, and sure, I think if you immersed yourself in every specialty, you could always find something that you enjoy and, and love. But mm -hmm. I think there's also a, a sort of a, a little bit of a gut feel that you have to be in tune with uh, as you go through things. There are certain topics that you want to read more about. There are certain patients that you that are memorable or certain experiences that you find yourself gravitating towards. So for me in very broad terms, yes, it seemed paradoxical that I was interested in internal medicine and neurosurgery, but one of the things that I was really interested in, in was acute care and just, mm -hmm. um, you know, sick patients. Um, and, and I think that can be said about a lot of specialties, but I particularly found that, you know, in the ICU, in cardiology and, um, uh, GI respirology, and in a lot of surgical specialties, uh, you had really sick patients, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in neurosurgery and, and things like general surgery. Um, and so I, I really like being involved in, uh, in, in sort of the critical care meets the, the sort of surgical management of disease. And I just didn't know which side I wanted to be involved in. Right. Um, and, and so as I got through the years, I, I sort of had a list that kind of came down to about four or five options by, by clerkship and then down to two options by the beginning of fourth year. And um, I found that that list actually really helped me sort of cognitively unburden myself from uh, uh, this perception of like an unending number of possibilities and needing mm -hmm. to make the right mm -hmm. choice. Uh, when actually, you know, I, I know exactly how many choices I, I have in front of me. And I have had a systematic approach to kind of going through those. Um, I think different things work for different people. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that this should be everyone's approach, but it, mm -hmm. it's one approach and I, I felt like it worked well. And I think that's, that sentiment is resonates a lot with, with me in terms of not necessarily putting things in the boxes of specialties and getting so hung up on, do I like internal or do I like family or do I like surgery, but thinking about what aspects of care, what aspects of medicine is, are particularly interesting to me. And I think that's something I'm going to, kind of you start using a little bit more going forward so thanks for sharing that totally Absolutely. yeah i mean next time you find yourself like you know saying that um oh yeah i, I want to do uh dermatology well 
you know, try to break it down. Like what, what about dermatology? You know, there, there are certain, there are going to be certain patient lifestyle and personal factors that go into every single time that you come up with that sort of thought that, um, and it's all about weighing those different things for yourself. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, uh, you know, once you, once you kind of actively uh, reflect on those things, you'll just be more in tune with your own decision-making throughout those years and it'll become less stressful, I think. Right. It's awesome. Yeah. That last little sentiment there, that, that is something I hadn't thought of before. Mm-hmm. I, get, I get myself caught yeah. up in that all the time of like, you know, I have shadowed honestly three times, twice. Mm-hmm. And they've both been in the internal kind of realm. And then I'm like, well, I need to go start shadowing other things. But then there's a little bit, like you said, of you're doing that for a reason too. Uh, exactly. that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And you only see a very small subset of, uh, of what there is to offer with each specialty when you shadow, right? Mm-hmm. On a given day. So even repeated shadowing in one thing that you're interested in is, is also very beneficial. Definitely. Well, that's perfect. I think that is a perfect time and place to stop. All right. Uh, And that brings us to the end of our episode. We want to make sure that Armand is fully able to take advantage of his time off uh, and do some of the things he normally doesn't get to, like getting some proper sleep. So thank you so much for joining us, Armand. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for listening. For more episodes of Metamorphosis, you can look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was written, recorded, and edited with 100% adherence to social distancing guidelines. As usual, on behalf of the entire Metamorphosis team, we hope you are staying happy, healthy, and safe. See you next time, and remember to wash your hands. Nice outro. Thanks. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 